If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How large was the average Tudor wardrobe? Did women in the 16th century have specialised maternity wear? And what exactly was behind the fascination with ruffs and cod pieces? Jane Malcolm Davies is the woman in the know for all things Tudor fashion. Along with Nina Makaila, she's behind the Tudor Tailor, a project providing research, resources and inspiration for anyone interested in 16th century dress. Here, speaking with Emily Briffitt, Jane stitches together our understanding of what the Tudors wore and details how clothes were lovingly made, kept and cleaned, from knitted hats and linen handkerchiefs right down to underwear. Hi Jane, it's an absolute pleasure to be chatting to you today. Hi there, thanks for inviting me. So today we're going to be talking all about Tudor clothing. First off, I think we should start with what did the ordinary Tudor wear? And I think we should probably start at the base layer of clothing. Did Tudors wear underwear? Well, it depends what your definition of underwear is. I think even before we get as far as the underwear, one of the most important things to understand is that people in the 16th century had a choice of essentially three materials, linen, wool and silk. And the sort of ordinary person who we might be most interested in here will have linen underwear Um, so it's made from a plant fiber and it's easy to wash which is one of the most important things about underwear but it doesn't consist of pants or knickers it's a, a smock for a woman or a shirt for a man long enough that you can tuck it between your legs and it serves as your underwear in the way that we might wear several garments today. So what about the next layer up? Well, again, it depends a little bit on where in the century we're looking. If we take the Tudor period to be 1485 to 1603, things do change and terminology in particular changes. So if we're looking at an ordinary woman in the early part of the century, the layer that will go on top of her smock is usually referred to as a kirtle. But later on in the century, it would be a petticoat. And we can sort of pinpoint the mid-century as the time when that terminology changes. But just to complicate matters, a wealthier woman, maybe someone among the elite for whom we have records, for example, in the royal household accounts, they often have a petticoat over their smock and then a kirtle. And... That's because they can afford more layers of clothing. 
but also because each of them is able to display different types of um, finery. And it's quite often the case that the petticoat layer will be described for a wealthy woman as crimson and usually silk. And crimson is specifically a word for red, which comes from the dichermes. Whereas a woman lower down the social scale who's just got her kirtle over her smock, that's much more likely to be dyed with madder to make it red. So still an expensive process, but a much cheaper dye stuff. And can you just tell us exactly what is a kirtle? A kirtle is usually a top and bottom joined together at the waist. The bottom will be full and there'll be a slit at the centre front in the skirt part and a slit down the middle of the, the body's part. And those, the top part will be joined with a lace, a long lace. And so it's fitted to the body and it will have been made for that woman individually, even if she is at the lowest level of society. There were tailors who served the rich and there were tailors who served the poor. And so each woman is going to have a a kirtle that fits her body and they have stiffening in the form of canvas or other stiff fabric which gives the garment body and therefore support for her. Just a quick question here but what about pregnant women? How could that be adjusted for them? Well it's very interesting that the fact that most women's clothing is laced makes it very flexible and My business partner, Nina Mikhaila, and I have actually tested this because she's had two children in the time we've been working together. And we often did dressing demonstrations in which we dressed her both in ordinary people's clothing and wealthy women's clothing. And it was amazing to see how easy it was to adjust the clothing to fit her growing size to the point where we even did a demonstration where we put her into a very posh outfit at um, Sudley Castle the week before she gave birth to one of her children. And you would never know that she had been expecting a baby. So well did it all go together. What did men wear? Obviously, women had their kirtle. What about men? Men usually would have over their shirt some sort of hose for their legs and hose changes in shape quite dramatically through the Tudor period. It's cut close to the leg, really like we would think of a pair of tights, but not made of stretchy knitted material, made of stretchy woven material. And that's what we usually refer to as bias cut hose. It gets the stretch from being cut on the bias of the fabric. But as the century goes on, people are still wearing that kind of hose, but it becomes much more usual to wear breeches, which um, finish at the knee. And these would be made of different types of wool or indeed for for some people who could afford it they might be um, silk or silk wool or silk linen mix fabrics like camlet. Okay what about overclothes and accessories and even shoes? Again it comes down really to terminology so most men are wearing a doublet on the top part of their body and a doublet is a distinctive garment. It's usually buttoned up the front. It has fitted sleeves. It's quite close to the body, which means that it's relatively easy to wear another garment on top. Sometimes a jerkin, which is again a fitted short torso covering garment, or a gown, which is also something that women wear. A top 
layer of clothing for when you go out or you're being formal. And most people would have a gown that they regarded as their best for going to church, for going to special occasions, and potentially uh, a middling gown. Maybe it's last year's new gown and then a what they might refer to as their worst gown. So the one that's oldest and seen the most use. And they might use that perhaps when they're doing something more active, maybe riding if they're travelling, or for doing activities where the that you don't need to be wearing your absolute best garments. So Tudors had a selection of clothes to choose from. It wasn't just a single outfit. I think it would be fair to say from, from the research we've done into Will's inventories and other documentary evidence that the wardrobe was much, much smaller than we're used to and the choice of garments would be several of the same style. So a man might have three doublets, a woman might have three kirtles. They might be different colours. So sheep colour is very common because, of course, the fewer processes of fabric has been through, the cheaper it is. And the way we like to think of it is um, the closer the garment is to the sheep, the the cheaper and less sophisticated it is. So a sheep-coloured doublet or a sheep-coloured kirtle would be very common, whereas you might have another which was dyed with madder, so it was red. And then maybe in the earlier part of the century, a man might have clothes that were tawny, which was a very fashionable colour. Although black is is the single most important colour in all Tudor's wardrobes. If you think of the street scene you might perceive as you were imagining a Tudor village or a Tudor town, there would be a huge amount of black, especially in top garments that people were wearing out and about in public. There are some colours that are surprising to find, I think it's true to say that the, in, in the earlier part of the period, so closer to the medieval past, there is a more varied colour palette available. So there are yellows and greens and blues. Not, not very many of them, but they, they do exist. Whereas as the century progresses, the colour palette really reduces. So you don't find as much yellow, you don't find as much of what you might think of as quintessentially medieval colours. However, one colour that prevails is violet. And there's a lot of confusion over violet because this is specifically not purple. Purple is achieved using dye stuffs that are very, very expensive and difficult to work with. And they are that colour is reserved to the elite. And in some cases, it's reserved to the royal family alone. But there's a cheaper version, which is violet. And violet can be achieved by over-dyeing blue from woad and red from madder but it can also be achieved with a dye called orkil which is a lichen that grows naturally it can't be farmed and that's why nowadays lichen is almost extinct it was um i was going to say it's hunt it was hunted to extinction um it was gathered and it was gathered in such large quantities and so unsustainably that it became a very very rare plant by the 18th and almost gone in the 19th century which is why the hunt for an artificial purple dye was so lucrative in the um, 19th century so it was possible to achieve this paler purple known as violet and that is surprisingly common for both men and women in the 16th century i wouldn't urge people to rush out and 
cover themselves in violet if they want to be typically Tudor, but you'd certainly see garments made of violet-coloured fabric on occasion. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. To just go back to when we were talking about how many outfits an ordinary person would have, how would this vary depending on social status? Presumably, nobler families would probably have more items of clothing. Yes, it's astonishing when you read household accounts of very wealthy people, just how many interchangeable items they have. Huge numbers. And, you know, we only have to think about Henry VIII's inventory, Queen Elizabeth I's account books, the extraordinary number of garments like gowns, kirtles, petticoats, loose gowns, fitted gowns, Dutch gowns, round gowns, all kinds of different styles of gown, inspired by what were thought to be the quintessential styles of other countries. But one of the peculiarities of what might be called a Spanish gown or an Italian gown is that the Italians were not necessarily wearing an Italian gown. They might have been wearing what they called an English gown. So these were not necessarily fashions that would help you pinpoint a person as being from that country. It was simply a way of describing a style that was worn all over Europe. But for for lower class people, it was true to say that they that they would have alternatives of the same garment for their most of their wardrobe, but they would not have huge numbers of clothes and it's quite rare in wills and inventories to find people having multiple items except for example women's headwear where they have enormous numbers in some cases of linen squares linen triangles linen quarters linen forehead cloths all kinds of different ways of arranging linen on your head to make interesting headdresses so that is something that we see in, in larger quantities where where it's listed. But sometimes a, a person's wardrobe is described as all my linen and woolen. And that's it. You don't get any more detail. Is that similar with men's caps? No, it, it's it's not the same at all. In fact, we get very little detail of men's headwear in comparison to women's. Hats and caps were, I mean, nowadays we can assign that terminology very clearly to a felt hat versus a knitted cap. But these terms were interchangeable for a lot of people in their wardrobes, even if cappers very clearly 
were involved in the production of knitted caps, which were fulled and dyed, you know, on, on many occasions, versus the hatters who were busy making hats from felt. But people didn't necessarily stick to those terms in the way they described their own clothes. So we know that most felt hats were black. We know that knitted caps could be red, they could be blue, they could be crimson in some cases. We know that from dyeing manuals where recipes are given for dyeing them. And also for women, they were often white knitted caps. That was very conventional for women to wear white knitted caps. Were there any particular fashion for, obviously you say about women wearing lots of linen on their heads, were there, what were the particular fashions that incorporated this? Uh, well, one of the things that we worked out from the evidence that's available from the 16th century is that what began life as a flat, not quite square piece of linen, which could be worn as a headscarf, twisted to put the tails on the top of your head you can flip the back up over the top of your head or you can do all kinds of other arrangements with it that that flat piece of linen eventually became more structured so wire was used to help give it a corner at the cheeks and the terminology we think was most that was most usually used for that is a cornered kerchief so the kerchief would be the original piece of flat linen And then to create these corners, which are very characteristic at the cheekbones, wire could be used to shape it. And of course, when you go a little bit higher up the social scale, a French hood is a sort of development of that cornered kerchief with bilaments, fabric, such as expensive silk, and then jewels or pearls, which were interchangeable. So This was a a way of building up a headdress from scratch each time you wore it, rather than it being a piece of headwear that you put on all in one go. So pretty time-consuming as you go up the social scale. And underneath all of these headdresses would be braided your, your own hair braided using hair lacing in order to secure it around your head to provide a, a stiff ridge on which your headdress could sit and stay pretty firm. So talking about time there, how long on average would it take an ordinary person to get ready in the morning? Well, what we have to remember is that anything that you do time and time and time again, you get pretty efficient at. You know, even if you think about your most complicated clothes, you get pretty good at putting them on when you wear them a lot. And so lacing up your kirtle or your petticoat you know, there are, there are ways that you can have a long enough lace that it's mostly laced, so you wriggle it on over your head and then you can pull the laces tight from top and bottom or just from the top, and that doesn't take as long as laboriously lacing it each time. A lot, any clothes that lace or button up the front are quicker and easier to get on than anything that laces at the back. And similarly, things that lace down the sides aren't too difficult to do yourself. But of course, once you go higher up the social scale, you've got someone to help you. And even for ordinary people, families were often large. You know, you might get one of your children to help you get dressed if you were trying to put your Sunday best on in a hurry. So I think it's a bit, it's one of those, how long is a piece of string or how long is a kirtle lace? It depends on the circumstances. Very, very few people lived entirely on their own. Even 
what we would think of as humble people had servants. So to say someone was a servant could mean they were a well-born, gentlemanly person serving at court, or it could mean that you were a maidservant to a husbandman who made his living essentially as a small farmer. So what did children wear? I think there's a perception that children were basically small adults. Is that true? It depends, again, on who you're looking at and when. There are very specific clothes conventionally worn by children at different stages in their life. And there comes a point, for example, in a boy's life when he's breached, that if he comes from the sort of family that has their portraits painted, he might be painted to celebrate the fact that he's now moving away from the world of women in the nursery and into the world of men. And so as much as possible of his clothing is going to make him look like a man. But paintings of younger boys before they're breached, they may be wearing skirts because they're much more convenient before children have been properly potty trained. But he might also have a man's sword or a a child-sized man's sword to indicate that he's a boy. So it's not strictly true to say that children were dressed as miniature adults. There are subtle differences in the garments which are practical for the age of the child. There are lots of aprons with bibs. There's a lot of washable linen items that children wear because it's a it's a practical choice. So I'd like to talk a little bit about fashion trends. Were there any particular Tudor trends? I think you could point to particular features of garments and, and chart how they differ through the century. The shape of skirts, again, we're talking here for clearly the wealthy, but also maybe for the middle class. There are also fashions in sleeve shapes and types of sleeves, so that by the end of the century, sleeves are being held out with um, farthingale supports to make them much bulkier than they are earlier in the century when they're cut to fit um, very neatly. Most of the the ordinary people, are uh, they are following trends. So, for example, men's hose, likewise, it changes shape through the century, as I mentioned before. Doublets have features to them that change over the century, but these are very subtle changes. I think the biggest um, alterations are in the style of neckwear, where it goes both for men and women from small ruffles on the smock or the shirt early in the century, um, sort of a classic, classically we'd think of that in Henry VIII's period, to ruffs in Elizabeth I's period. And the one develops from the other. And then by the end of the century, the ruff is beginning to be less fashionable and falling bands become much more de rigueur. But of course, all of these things are existing in tandem because older people tend to stick to the fashions of their youth, um, whether they're rich or poor, and young people tend to adopt new fashions much more readily and change their clothes and their style more often. So if they could afford to do that, they might rattle through several styles of headdress, neckwear in their lifetime much more swiftly than maybe an older person would do. How far were the Tudors influenced by styles in Europe and and beyond, I guess? There was definitely exchange between the countries and, you know, partly that trend was set by royalty. Henry VIII wore 
what was known as Almain-style clothes, Alemania from Germany. Um, but so too with the French. It, as I said before, it, it, it's not that only Germans wore that style. And the joke about people from Britain, and particularly the English, was that they wore a little bit of everybody's fashions. So a criticism was that he might have boots from one country and um, his codpiece from another country and a hat from another country. So an Englishman was a bit of a mess of different styles. But I think that was probably just as true in Madrid and Paris as it was in London, that people would take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and and make their own assortment of items. And this was particularly true when when people often bought clothes in the second-hand trade. So you might not have the luxury of deciding you were going to be entirely Dutch in your dress or entirely Italian in your dress. If you were making do with what you could afford and it came from somebody else's wardrobe, you, you would use a serviceable hat irrespective of what style it was. There's another interesting trend, let's say, there. Why did cod pieces come about? <laughs> I don't know whether I could answer the question why. I'm not sure anyone could explain the excess of the cod piece in the middle of the 16th century. But the, the functional reason for it is that bias cut hose needs a flap in the front to cover up between what were originally two separate legs. So a crotch seam comes in and then you need a cod flap in order to hold the hose together and also to be able to get in and out of it. And gradually that flap becomes more and more pronounced and decorated so that it's an opportunity for display. And obviously we see that in portraits of the wealthy, ribbons, all sorts of gold braid, very fancy. But at the Museum of London, there is a collection of very, very simple cod pieces made of very unassuming materials, but many, many layers of padding in order to make them the, the classic pronounced cod piece shape. Anybody who's really interested in our book, The, the Typical Tudor, we do have a whole page of cod pieces and we discuss the, the role of the cod piece in, in hose, as well, of course, as providing you know, detailed instructions for how you make them based on our examination of these originals, which are amazing survivals. And they probably survived because they were regarded as indecent and cut off and hidden away, uh, whereas whatever they came from may very well have been on display, but we, we don't know what's happened to the rest of the hose, which is a great shame. Her hose was made of a particular style of fabric called kersey, which had this amazing stretch on the diagonal, which made it suitable for bias-cut hose. And if only we were able to recreate kersey today, we would be more successful at recreating 16th century men's dress. This very much leads me on to my next point of... How long did it take to make clothes? And could most people do this? Or was this a skill that was particularly prized and a skill of a few people? Tailors did a seven-year apprenticeship and then served as journeymen to practice their trade and gain experience, which often meant travelling around from 
place to place to work with different tailors to learn from them. And then they could become master tailors themselves. And obviously not not all tailors became master tailors and set up their own workshops and trained apprentices and journeymen in their turn. So there were there were apprentices and journeymen and tailors who each had different skill levels. The tailor's particular um, strength was in his expertise at cutting, cutting the fabric efficiently and cutting it appropriately to fit the person he was making it for. The apprentices and the journeymen would do much of the actual stitching under his supervision. And clearly it's a long training if you're going to do seven years as an apprentice and sometimes seven years as a journeyman before you can call yourself a master tailor. And that's why very few garments were made by people themselves. We know that it was habitual for women to make linen items at home So shirts and smocks might be stitched by the mother or wife or sister in a family. But we also know that servants were paid to make linen items of clothing in households where there was a servant available to do that. And, you know, in some households, the servants were all busy working the land or running the family business. They weren't necessarily available to sew. And we know also that peddlers travelling around carrying goods that they sold at people's doors would carry linen but they didn't carry much in the way of wool wool was what the tailor worked with and of course more expensive fabrics like silks and satins so most people did not make their own clothes it wasn't the sort of tudor idyll we sometimes imagine with everyone being self-sufficient on their little farm There were lots of artisans who were specialists in particular crafts and you would go to those artisans to get specific things made by an expert, not try and make it at home. So yeah, most people would go to a tailor and that tailor might be someone who specialises in lower class dress and in fact some tailors specialised in particular garments. So men who made hose were, were hosiers and they didn't make doublets. And sometimes tailors graduated from their training with permission to make particular garments and not others, which recognised what they had been trained to do. What about, say, clothes get torn or ripped? What about repair work? Was that also for tailors or was that a matter for the home? Again, I think it depended um, how extensive the repairs needed to be. So Thomas Tusser explains in his work on husbandry that women should expect to wash and mend the family's clothes. But I think, again, most of those repairs would be to linen clothes, the ones that were going through the laundry. And there were particular tailors called bodgers who specialised in recycling old clothes, but also patching and mending broken clothes, either for people who would have their own clothes back repaired or to repair and then sell on in the second-hand clothes trade. And we think of bodging as being, you know, not really doing something well. But at the time, it specifically referred to this idea of recycling, repairing, mending things. So were clothes seen as particularly valuable? Yes, I, I think it's fair to say 
that the investment we think of as going into our homes, whether it's rent or a mortgage, that's the proportion of your income that was going into your clothes in the 16th century. So it's a much bigger investment of your disposable income. And of course, clothes are an absolute necessity. So it's it's a large it's a large sum of money that's going into the, the your personal appearance, which needs to be not only functional for the job of work you do, but it also needs to be functional in terms of displaying your status in society. Was it common for clothes to be shared or passed on with friends and family? Definitely. A, a lot of the evidence we have from wills and inventories that we've drawn on for our book is uh, describing clothing that's going to be passed on to other members of the family or your neighbour or your friend who will get your best petticoat or possibly your worst petticoat. And I always think that if somebody is leaving their worst petticoat to a friend or neighbour, it doesn't suggest any disrespect to that person. It means that your even your worst petticoat has value either to be worn by that person or to be sold on for the monetary value it it holds. There was something also you mentioned, it was about washing clothes. Could you just go into a little bit of detail? Obviously, we today have washing products, we have washing machines. What did Tudors do? Uh, there were washerwomen who worked um, either on riverbanks, as you might expect, or they went to special washing facilities that were provided in towns and boroughs. And, for example, in Nottingham, there were washing stairs. And washing stairs were facilities where water could flow down in order to allow several people to be washing their clothes at once. And we know about the ones in Nottingham because there were requests for repairs to be made to the washing stairs. And today, even in uh, villages in Italy, there are wash houses that you can, from the 16th and in some cases the 17th century, where you get a really good picture of these quite extensive and sophisticated facilities that were available for professional washerwomen or for householders to go and clean their linen clothing. The way people treated their outer garments is more like we consider our winter coats. So if you've got a, a, a woolen coat that you wear in the winter, you might brush it if you notice that it's a bit dusty or it's been in the wardrobe for a while and it needs a bit of sprucing up. But you wouldn't ever wash it. You might spot wash if you drop something on it. But you you would take it to a specialist. You'd take it to a dry cleaner to have it properly cleaned. And in the 16th century, there were methods by which you could do that kind of cleaning using alcohol they, often it was spritzed onto fabric, left to dry, and then it would be brushed off as alcohol can lift out certain types of stains. But generally speaking, you would look after your clothes better and you would think about whether you were in a situation where they were likely to get dirty. So people used um, table napery in order to cover their clothes when they were eating. And also aprons were worn extensively by men and women for work as well as sometimes for best when they were made of um, more expensive materials. So aprons were very common as a way of protecting your clothes. And also oversleeves. So quite often these could be knitted um, oversleeves and they would protect your 
your clothing from maybe the dirt of what you did for a living. As a final question to you, are there any really practical pieces of Tudor clothing that you think we should probably resurrect? Well, interestingly, it does relate to the washing, and that is that when you have enough linen shirts for a man or smocks for a woman and you wear a linen smock which goes from your shoulders to your wrists and down to your knees whatever you wear on top of that is protected from your body so you don't have to wash the clothes you wear on top of that linen anything like as often as we tend to wash our clothes because they we have them close to our skin And linen is much easier to wash than a lot of other fabrics. It'll take um, a very high temperature and it will last a very long time. The other precaution that um, Tudor people took in the way they made their linen clothes was they were much more meticulously stitched and sewn together because they had to go through the hard wear of the laundry than other types of clothing. And here's another Tudor tip Other types of clothing were often stab-stitched, and I I use that in the sense that the stitching was not meticulous and tiny. It was often very large and swiftly done, not only for the ease of making, quickly and efficiently, but also because the expectation was that these clothes would be taken apart and remade either for the same owner or made perhaps for a child or a smaller person. So you can imagine a large over-gown for a tall man, once he's worn that and it's no longer serviceable for him, that's a lot of fabric that you can turn into breeches for his children or a shorter coat for his manservant or even maybe a skirt for a gown for his wife. They sound like some very, very sensible, very, very practical ideas. Thank you so much for chatting with me today, Jane. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Jane Malcolm Davies. Her and Nina Michaela's latest book, The Typical Tudor, is out now. To find out more, simply search for The Tudor Tailor online. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.